I don't know how long this video is going to stay up before YouTube takes it down or before something else happens or I'm penalized in some way. But the bottom line is that there was a presidential address earlier this week and in that address the president lied to the American people and I want to make sure that I do everything I can to explain what those lies were, how those lies happened, and why those lies were used. So what I'm going to do with you right now is I'm going to take you through the presidential address as it was published by the White House, and I will actually show you points at which information was not accurate and where you were misled intentionally using two techniques known as the lie of influence and the lie of omission. So with that, we'll just jump into it because I really don't know what else to say besides that. I am disappointed and sad as an American citizen, and I am frustrated, not necessarily because I believe the president intended to lie to us, but I do believe that either he is being misled or he is intentionally misleading us. Either way, this is my chance to do what I think is right and share with you the points at which I believe we are being misled as the American people, as the American public. So let's go. Good evening, my fellow Americans. We're facing an inflection point in history. One of those moments where the decisions we make today are going to determine the future for decades to come. Now, right away with the calling out of this inflection point in history, I believe that the president is exactly right. I could not agree with you more, President Biden, on this point. We are at an inflection point. Now, for those of you who don't know what an inflection point is in engineering terms, it's a point in which a piece of steel or a piece of material starts to break under pressure. And in that point of weakness, it has an inflection. And that is where we are for sure. We are at a point of weakness in history. And the question is whether that weakness is American weakness or some other kind of weakness. But without a doubt, we are at a point in our history where we have to decide and make decisions today that will impact our children and our children's children after that. This is a very important moment. They tell me I'm the first American president to travel there during the war. I met with the prime minister and members of his cabinet. And most movingly, I met with Israelis who had personally lived through horrific horror of the attack by Hamas on the 7th of October. So let's take a moment to be honest about the prime minister of Israel. Benjamin Netanyahu is a criminal in the eyes of Israel. He is currently under an indictment and in an open investigation for fraud and corruption. It cost him his prime minister seat in 2019, and it's the reason that Israel's had three prime ministers since 2020. Even now, as he sits in that seat since 2022, being re-elected with a total of more than 16 years in the prime minister seat, on October 6th, just before the attacks happened in Israel, uh, Netanyahu was at an all-time low in terms of public support in Israel. Uh, he is supported by a far-right, conservative, uh, aggressive, and hawkish government. And he was actively trying to change the court system in Israel so that his indictment investigation would be terminated. The man that we are talking about supporting here, the prime minister that, the, that President Biden met with, is essentially a carbon copy of the Donald Trump persona that we have here in the United States. A strong a hawkish right-leaning conservative who is currently under indictment and uh, facing criminal charges for corruption and fraud, among other things. So don't think for a second that the prime minister in Israel is a good guy. He is not. He is not supported by Israel. He is uh, under criminal charges. And in many ways, the invasion, the aggression that happened on October 8th is a very convenient way of him to redirect his own people off of his own issues. So uh, don't be misled. And I want to make sure that the world understands that, that Netanyahu is in no way comparable to our own President Biden. More than 1,300 people slaughtered in Israel. 
including at least 32 American citizens. This is another area that I want to make sure we speak about. Body counts. When we start talking about body counts, this is a phenomenon that really didn't exist prior to the Vietnam War. When the White House and when official public politicians speak about body counts, they're doing it so that they can create some kind of emotional reaction from you and I and the audience watching. We want to hear the number 1,300 and think that it's devastating. Let me give you another number. That other number is 3,700. That's how many Palestinian civilians have been lost in this conflict. You will always hear people talk about the number of Israeli deaths, and it is accurate. It's about 1,400 or more, and they're still finding new deaths from the original October 7th attack. However, there has not been another ground attack since October 7th. And in comparison to that, there have been multiple weeks of aerial bombing that have happened inside Gaza that have killed almost three times as many uh, Palestinians. Even worse than that, the number of injured exceeds more than 300% in Gaza versus what happened in Israel. So you have three times as much damage being wrought in Gaza against civilians, children, elderly, women, uh, families that are simply landlocked in this, this strip of land that was militarily oppressed and domestically oppressed by Israel prior to the war. So while it is atrocious and sad to hear what happened to Israel on October 7th, we have to also remember that if we're going to count bodies, we need to also count the bodies of the victims on the other side. As president, there is no higher priority for me than the safety of Americans held hostage. That is the first lie from the president. He does have higher priorities than the American hostages inside of Israel. Let's face it, he's responsible for 300 million people here in the United States, not just the 34 that, are, uh, that he referenced in Gaza. So without a doubt, there are priorities and the president prioritizes the protection of American citizens. But what he's also not telling you is that many of the American citizens are dual citizenship holders. They are both Israeli and American citizens. So if you're not aware that you can have multiple citizenships, there are multiple countries in the United States where we have a agreement where you can have more than one citizenship. It's kind of up to the American people to choose whether a true American citizen with just one citizenship is any different than an American citizen who carries another citizenship. But it's not as if the Americans were targeted by Hamas in their attack. They were not. Hamas was simply snatching and grabbing anybody that they could, knowing that they needed hostages out of Israel, which is why you saw so many young and old being taken, because there was no plan, there was no intentionality between how Hamas was executing killings versus how they were taking hostages. So I don't want you to think for a second that the president is actually prioritizing the hostages in Gaza as his top priority. They are not. He has many, many other priorities, including domestic policies here in the United States and his own long-term political future as the president of the United States. So I'm going to call you out on that, President Biden. I believe that what you uh, said there was not 100% accurate. I believe that that was what's known as a lie of influence, meaning it was an intentional misleading or possibly a misstatement intended to influence the public in your favor. The terrorist group Hamas unleashed pure, unadulterated evil in the world. Now let's talk about Hamas for a moment, because President Biden just called them a terrorist group. Let's be honest about Hamas. They have been labeled a terrorist group by less than 12 countries in the world. The vast majority of the world, including the UN, does not consider Hamas a terrorist group. Instead, they continue, they consider Hamas to be a political party, a force, and the legislative body of the Gaza Strip, elected democratically and in power since 2007. So Hamas, whether we like to admit it or not, has a militant wing, but they are also a recognized political party inside the Gaza Strip. They were voted into power. They have an established leader and a hierarchy. And even worse, they are a party, they are a, pol a political party 
without any kind of citizenship because the Palestinians who they represent aren't a recognized country. So what that means is that Palestine and Hamas are politically accepted by the majority of the world, right? It's really only the United States, the US allies, Paraguay, and the European Union that see Hamas as an actual terrorist organization, and of course, Israel as well. The rest of the world sees Hamas as a political group, political group without a country, and importantly, without a military to defend itself. So I wanna make sure that you understand that when the president says that Hamas is a terrorist organization, he's really talking from an American point of view only. In the eyes of the Americans and in the eyes of the Israelis, Hamas is a terrorist group. But to be fair, in the eyes of Iran, the US military is a terrorist group. So it's all about perspective on this one. But sadly, the Jewish people know perhaps better than anyone that there is no limit to the depravity of people when they want to inflict pain on others. Now, this is another thing that I think is important because the president just said the Jewish people. Hamas exists for one reason. They were created in 1987 specifically to prevent and, and destroy Israel because Israel was oppressing the Palestinian people. It was the oppression of Israel against Palestine that was the birthplace for Hamas. Let's not get the order of actions confused here. Hamas did not exist prior to 1987. The ongoing pressure and conflict between Israelis and Palestinians in the country of Israel and the marginalization, oppression, a discrimination that they were putting on the Muslim people there is really what led to the birth of Hamas as a way of fighting back against Israeli oppression. And Hamas is targeting only Israel, not Jews. There's a big difference between an Israeli and a Jew. The president here said that Jews are the target and that is not accurate. Israel is the target, the country of Israel. Hamas doesn't care whether Israel is, is full of Christians or Jews or other Muslims. If it's oppressing the Palestinians, if it's depriving the Palestinians of a homeland, then Hamas is there to fight and counteract it. Outside of Israel, the state of Israel, Hamas doesn't really exist, which is why the rest of the world does not see them as a terrorist group. Interestingly, it is also the reason that the United States does label them as a terrorist group, because we are trying to show support for Israel. So don't think that Hamas is targeting Jews. They are not. Hamas is in a very clear fight for the survival of the Palestinian people in their own state within the landmass that is known as Israel. I also spoke with President Abbas, the Palestinian Authority. President Abbas of the Palestinian Authority is not the recognized leader in the Gaza Strip. He is the recognized leader in the West Bank, but not the Gaza Strip. They have two very different forms of government. So what the president is saying here without saying it is that he is speaking to the Palestinian Authority who does not represent the actual body of victims who are being attacked right now. Reiterated, the United States remains committed to the Palestinian people's right to dignity and to self-determination. This is a very important lie of omission here. The president just said that he reiterated that American support to Palestinians is there for their right to dignity and self-determination. What he did not say is that they have any right to self-preservation or to protect themselves. The president has said that Israel has a right to protect itself. He is not giving that same permission to the Palestinian people. That is an important point in this conversation. At no point during this address will you hear the president say that the Palestinians have any right to protect or defend themselves. He does not acknowledge them as a group of people. He does not acknowledge them as an oppressed people within the lands of Israel. And that is a sad and frustrating thing, but it's also what's known as a lie of omission. He is not telling you the total truth. The total truth being that the United States does not actually support the Palestinians' people in their fight against Israel. 
<clears throat> the assault on Israel echoes nearly 20 months of war, tragedy, and brutality inflicted on the people of Ukraine. So here the president is starting to make a transition to compare what's happening in Israel to what's happening in Ukraine. It's important to me that you understand that this is also a lie of influence. The president is trying to make you believe that there's a connection between what's happening in Ukraine and what's happening in Israel. They are two completely different types of conflict completely different types of conflict. In Ukraine, you see an outside nation state invading another independent sovereign nation state. That's not what's happening in Israel. In Israel, you have an oppressed group that is launching an attack against its oppressor. And then you have the oppressor responding and going well above and beyond in terms of capability and response to the original attack. So they cannot be compared. Even though in this address, you'll see that he continues to make comparisons to the two in a plea to the American people to support American interests in both conflicts. While I am all for American interests and I understand that there is a great deal at play at stake here for the United States, I want to make sure that we highlight this lie of influence because this is not actually an accurate statement. It does not reflect what's happening in Ukraine in any way. It's a separate conflict carried out for separate reasons in a separate different way. We've not forgotten the mass graves, the bodies found bearing signs of torture, rape used as a weapon by the Russians. So what you see here is the president is now talking about atrocities in Ukraine and letting you believe that what he might be also talking about is similar atrocities that are happening in Israel. They're completely different types of crimes. They're completely different types of uh, of atrocities that are happening in the two different war zones. There is no forced migration of children. There is no forced use of rape that has been reported. That has only happened in Ukraine. That has not happened in Israel, to our knowledge. Hamas and Putin represent different threats, but they share this in common. They both want to completely annihilate a neighboring democracy. Again, this is another lie of influence. In no way has Russia or Hamas said that they want to destroy any kind of democracy. What Russia is looking to do is prevent Ukraine from joining NATO. He has never once said that he wants to change their leadership model or make them part of Russia. That's always been an assumption that's been played out in the media. If anything, you've actually heard Putin come out and say that he wants simply to pull Ukraine away from NATO and he wants to prevent their joining the Western powers. He has only ever once threatened their independent sovereignty uh, and that was very early on in the war when he said that if they would come quietly and kindly he would grant them their continued sovereignty and he would never take that away. That is the closest thing that we've ever had to Putin saying that he wants to destroy a democracy. Hamas on the other hand is different. They are an elected political force uh, and they have a militant wing that does carry out uh, non-traditional or what's sometimes known as guerrilla attacks, and they are supported by Iran. They do not want to destroy a democracy. They want to establish their own democracy. Uh, what they want to do is they want to annihilate what they perceive to be an existential threat, an actual threat to their existence. That's what an existential threat means. And Israel for sure poses an existential threat to the Palestinians, whereas the Palestinians do not pose an existential threat to Israel. They don't have the force, the means, or the capability to actually destroy the existence of Israel. But Israel does have the weapons, the technology, and the capability to truly destroy the existence of Palestine. Hamas does not represent the Palestinian people. Hamas uses Palestinian civilians as human shields and innocent Palestinian families are suffering greatly because of them. Now, this is a direct lie, what's known as a lie of commission. Hamas, in fact, does represent the Palestinian people. Not only have they been elected to power in the Gaza Strip, but there are multiple surveys that show that across the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, the majority of Palestinians actually prefer the government of Hamas 
over the government of the Palestinian Authority. The president just gave a very direct, what's known as a lie of commission or what's known as a bold-faced lie. Actually, Hamas does represent the Palestinian people according to open polls and according to their own voting process. Putin denies Ukraine has or ever had real statehood. He claims the Soviet Union created Ukraine. And just two weeks ago, he told the world that if the United States and our allies withdraw, and if the United States withdraw, our allies will as well, military support for Ukraine would have, quote, a week left to live, but we're not withdrawing. So there's a couple of points here that are really important, right? First, Putin has clearly stated that if the West stops supporting Ukraine, essentially a ceasefire condition will be met. So that has been very clearly stated and clearly understood. It's also important to note that what the president said here is that if the United States withdraws from Ukraine, Europe will too. So even though the war in Europe threatens Europe, what the president is clearly saying here is that Europe doesn't support Ukraine as much as the United States supports Ukraine, that Europe wants the war to end, and that the real driving force that keeps NATO engaged isn't NATO, it's the United States. So here, the United States, we are the ones driving the conflict in a far-off land in Europe when it doesn't actually influence us. Meanwhile, our European partners are, are actually divided amongst themselves. There's actual division in NATO itself about continuing support to Ukraine. And the president stated clearly that if the United States were to withdraw, then our NATO allies would also withdraw, which means that the real contributing force to the continuing conflict in Ukraine is the United States. You know, history has taught us that when terrorists don't pay a price for their terror, when dictators don't pay a price for their aggression, they cause more chaos and death and more destruction. Now here the president makes a very bold statement. He says that history taught this to us. And he also said just before that that he's going to explain to us why it is that supporting Israel and Ukraine are critical to American national security. Now what you'll see as we continue to move forward is that he actually does not give us any relevant information about those facts. He doesn't tell us what parts of history show that this statement is true, and he doesn't actually give us a clear explanation as to why it's benefiting the American people to support war in Ukraine and Israel simultaneously. And you're about to find out exactly how he avoids answering those questions he presented. Putin's already threatened to remind, quote, remind Poland that their Western land was a gift from Russia. One of his top advisors, a former president of Russia, has called Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania Russia's Baltic provinces. So in these first two examples, you hear uh, President Biden talking about Putin and claims that Putin and his advisors have made. Uh, again, nobody, uh, no, none of those examples uh, reference the removal of democracies or any kind of advanced military threat or attack. Instead, it was just political jargon, very similar to the political jargon that we see thrown around all the time here in the United States and all around the world. So no case has been made yet explaining to us how history has taught us that terrorists don't stop and dictators don't stop. And also no point yet being made about how this benefits the American people. And if Putin attacks a NATO ally, we will defend every inch of NATO which a treaty requires and calls for. We'll have something that we do not seek. Make it clear, we do not seek. We do not seek to have American troops fighting in Russia. 
Now, this I agree with. I do agree that the United States does not seek to have American troops fighting in a foreign land. And we don't seek that for multiple reasons. One, the American people don't have an appetite for continued war after the 20-year global war on terror that ended in a just a disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan. But also because we can't support that kind of conflict, especially not now, now that we've depleted our stores the way that we have, and now that we've stretched our financial capabilities so thin with our own financial crisis here in the United States. So I do believe the president is saying the right thing. He's saying an honest thing here, that we do not want to put forces, American forces, in foreign lands. Uh, that is a true statement, and I, and I agree that that is intentionally, he is intentionally communicating that with us. We know that our allies, and maybe most importantly, our adversaries and competitors are watching. They're watching our response in Ukraine as well. Now again, this is a fantastic, accurate point of truth coming from the president. We do know that our enemies are watching us. China is watching our response in Ukraine. China is watching our response in Israel. Taiwan is watching. North Korea is watching. Japan is watching. Our Indo-Pacific and East Asian uh, partners and adversaries are very interested in seeing how we respond to conflict in the Middle East and conflict in Europe because it will demonstrate what our most likely courses of action would be when and if conflict arises in Asia. Iran is, is, is supporting Russia in Ukraine and is supporting Hamas and other terrorist groups in the region. So here the president's making a very interesting point, and it's an accurate point. Iran does, in fact, support Russia's conflict against Ukraine, and Iran does support both Hezbollah and Hamas in the Middle East. Iran's primary conflict point isn't actually the United States, however. Their primary conflict point is, in fact, a battle for dominance in the Middle East against Saudi Arabia. And there's a long history of conflict and, and aggression between the two countries, even though they have reached a place of, of relative diplomatic peace in the last few years, uh, largely orchestrated by China. What is not being said here is that Iran's interests in the Middle East and Iran's interests in Israel specifically have to do with Iran. They don't have to do with a weakening of the United States. They don't have to do with a weakening of Israel. They have to do very much with a strengthening of support for what's known as the Shia Crescent, or the increasing sphere of influence for Iran in the Middle East. There's also an important relationship here between uh, Iran and Russia, and as well between Russia and Israel, because Netanyahu and Putin are actually close advisors and friends. They have a long, close relationship expanding almost two decades. So Putin understands Netanyahu very well, and the same kind of relationship exists between Russia and Iran. So you have three countries here who are in communication with each other, and that contributes to this conflict because Putin is in a perfect position to be able to predict how Netanyahu will respond to any kind of aggression that's coming from Hamas. And Iran has the ability to essentially turn up or turn down the volume on Hamas's attacks. So what you see here is a situation in which Israel very well could be played by Iran because Putin is able to translate exactly what Iran might do and predict uh, Netanyahu's response in Israel. And that creates kind of a tinderbox that is under the control of an alliance that exists between Iran and Russia. Now there's a third important part to the alliance between Iran and Russia, and that is China. Because China, Iran, and Russia all recently became close allies when Iran joined the BRICS trading bloc, B-R-I-C-S trading bloc, at the end of August 2023. So we have now a mutual economic connection, a partnership, as well as an, a military partnership that exists and is demonstrated between Iran, Russia, and China, which is the new kind of counterbalance. That is the economic trading force that is trying to attract the, the developing world in competition with 
the G7 or Western allies. So what we really see here is a conflict of interests, a conflict for global influence to define the next generation of superpower. This is why we are truly at an inflection point in history because we have a group of countries in the developing world who are standing opposite to the existing uh, power base that is the G7 countries uh, and the Western allies. And the rest of the world has to decide which one they're going to allow to influence their policy more. And in that conflict, what we really have is an economic conflict, not a military conflict, which is why you see conflict in Europe and conflict in the Middle East, but you don't see anyone attacking the United States. You don't see any military targeting. You don't see any active targeting of American citizens or U.S. targets because the Eastern powers, China, Russia, and Iran, have all learned that they can execute their policy objectives and their power-based objectives much more effectively through proxy conflicts, like what we're seeing in Israel, what we saw in Syria, what we're seeing in Ukraine. They're able to support their ambitions by making the United States simply look weak and non-committal, rather than making the United States the center of any kind of actual physical attack. This is very similar to what you see in a playground or in a schoolyard when a group of smaller, weaker kids all band together to fight against a bully or a group of bullies. That's exactly what we're seeing here. The 10,000 pound gorilla in the world is the United States, specifically because of the United States economy. So when you see the smaller economies of the world all band together, their goal is to create a partnership or an alliance that actually can compete against the GDP developed by the United States. Because more GDP brings more wealth, more wealth creates better militaries, better military weaponry, and a stronger economic future. The possibility of future dominance over the Western powers. This is not a military conflict that the United States is at risk of losing or, or uh, feeling. This is very much a proxy conflict that exists because of Iran and Russia working together to try to gain influence in the East. The United States and our partners across the region are working to build a better future for the Middle East. One where the Middle East is more stable, better connected to its neighbors, and through innovative projects like the India-Middle East-Europe Rail Corridor that I announced this year at the summit of the world's biggest economies. Now here you're seeing what President Biden's true intention is with this address. It's not necessarily about highlighting the truth of atrocities in the Middle East or highlighting the importance of American national security concerns. It's really about President Biden trying to highlight that his leadership is a positive force on the United States. And that's really the end goal of what this address is all about, and you'll see it by the end. So stick with me as I explain why. But nevertheless, what you're seeing here is a clear departure from what his previous statements were, and he still has not gone about explaining to us why this benefits the United States or what historical evidence actually exists to support his claim that dictators and terrorists only become emboldened when they are not responded to. American leadership is what holds the world together. That is a true statement. American leadership is what holds the world together in many ways. And that is the real fight that the president is having right now. He doesn't really prioritize what's going on in Israel. He doesn't really prioritize what's going on in Ukraine. Those are not his primary concerns. His primary concern is the continuation of a democratic presidency. Even better if it's the continuation of his own presidency because a world that is bound by America is essentially a world that is under American influence. If some other country steps up to become the binding force, the leading force of the world, then that's going to reflect a degradation or a reduction in American influence. And that is the only true national security concern that you and I have to worry about. 
put all that at risk if we walk away from Ukraine, if we turn our backs on Israel, it's just not worth it. Now, this is another area where the president is creating something known as a lie of influence. You see, he's saying that we only have two options, to either support Israel and Ukraine militarily or to walk away from them. That is actually not the case. There are several options in between. We could continue humanitarian support without supporting the military. We could support in other ways with, uh, with insights or with advisory councils or with trade uh, benefits without having to delve into actual military conflict itself. We don't have to park our uh, navies in the Middle Eastern seas. We don't have to send our weapons to Ukraine. We can support them in many, many other ways. But what he's basically telling the American people here is that you're either all in or all out, which is not a true statement. This is a lie of influence. That's why tomorrow I'm going to send to Congress an urgent budget request to fund America's national security needs, to support our critical partners, including Israel and Ukraine. Now, here we have a, a few different lies that compound upon each other. One is a lie of influence, and the second is a lie of omission. What the president did not mention is that his urgent uh, security package is going to also include money for Taiwan and for protection in the Indo-Pacific. So he left that out of his list altogether, uh, and that was a strategic, intentional departure of information, right? That was built into the speech itself that you can see he is clearly reading and not very well reading because he kind of sounds like struggling to get through his own speech. But uh, he left that out completely. That is by definition a lie of omission. And then there's also a lie of influence here because he knows very well that any bill he sends to Congress can't be passed without a Speaker of the House. And there is no Speaker of the House at this moment in time. So really what the President is doing is setting up a situation here where he and the Democrats of the world, the Democrats of the United States, put forward a proposal to support our allies, but then the Republicans who don't know what they're doing in the Congress uh, or are going to look like they don't know what they're doing in the Congress, won't be able to approve the bill because they won't have a Speaker of the House. So he's creating a bill that he already knows won't be approved and or he's reforcing the Republicans to essentially rush to create to identify a new Speaker of the House, which is further adding to the chaos here in the United States. Either way, this is a lie of influence where he's trying to make it look like he is taking uh, proactive actions to support our allies when what he's really doing is he's playing a political chip to drive and cause more chaos in an already chaotic Congress. In Israel, we must make sure that they have what they need to protect their people today and always. Israel already has what they need to protect their people now and always. Their people are not the people who are currently at threat, President Biden. The people who are being killed on a daily basis right now are Palestinians who do not have what they need to protect themselves now and in the future. Let's be honest when we talk to the American people. The security package I'm sending to Congress and asking Congress to do is an unprecedented commitment to Israel's security that will sharpen Israel's qualitative military edge, which we've committed to. Israel has an incredibly sharp military edge against Hamas, against Palestine, against Iran, against all of their existential threats. You know this, Mr. President. So why are we sending more money? Why are we creating a package that will continue to enable Israel to execute human rights and international war crimes against the Palestinian people. It's documented, it's out there, you know as well as I do because of your time at the UN, because of the, the research that's been put out there by the human rights watches of the world. The atrocities that are being executed against the Palestinians are being executed by the sharp, refined, advanced technology that Israel has, that Israel was given to protect itself at this point in time, they are not protecting themselves. They are actively the aggressor and they will, they are promising to continue being the aggressor in the future. They are not in any way, shape or form slowing down or taking a defensive posture. They are taking an offensive posture. 
We're going to make sure other hostile actors in the region know that Israel is stronger than ever and prevent this conflict from spreading. The hostile actors in the region that he's referring to here is Iran. Iran is the primary hostile actor. And here's the deal. Iran already knows how capable Israel is. Iran and Hamas had no intention of trying to uh, destroy, invade, or, or cause some sort of change in leadership during the October 7th attack. The October 7th attack was what's known as a provocative attack. It was designed exclusively to provoke a response, ideally to provoke an over response. And that is exactly what it did. Iran was able to trigger an overreaction from Israel that has now started a fire in the Middle East that the world cannot support. The world does not support the systematic killing with advanced weaponry of the Palestinian people. The world doesn't support it. The United States doesn't even understand what's really happening here because this is the kind of information that we're getting from our White House. But the truth is that that the Palestinian people are truly the victims and outside of the borders of the United States, the rest of the world sees it. That's why you're seeing uh, revolts and, and, and mass gatherings and protests throughout Europe, throughout the Middle East, in East Asia, because the world understands it better than the American people understand it. And we could understand it better if our leadership would give us a clearer explanation of what's really happening. President Netanyahu and I discussed again yesterday the critical need for Israel to operate by the laws of war. That means protecting civilians in combat as best as they can. Now, this is an interesting one because uh, what the president is saying, in without saying it, is that he flagged for Netanyahu that they are committing war crimes against civilians. But he didn't want to say it that way to us because that wouldn't sound like Israel's doing the right thing. So instead, he said, uh, that he wanted to reiterate or emphasize the importance of following the rules and the laws of war. Uh, what he's really saying is that Israel has already violated the laws of war. They have already violated basic human rights. Uh, they are engaging actively in discrimination and apartheid in Israel with relation to both the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. Without saying the truth, the president is saying something similar to the truth. That's what's known as a lie of omission. It's also worth noting that he helped negotiate the first delivery of humanitarian aid, but that humanitarian aid delivery has not been finalized. So what he negotiated was an initial uh, confirmation, initial commitment. But the problem is that both Jordan and Egypt have long-standing fears about what Israel's true intentions are here. You see, the reason that Egypt and Jordan won't accept refugees coming out of the Palestinian states on the West Bank or Gaza is because they know that what the Israelis really want is to force the Palestinians out of Israeli land and force them to live outside of Israel. So if Jordan and Egypt actually accept refugees, what's going to happen is that Israel will never allow those refugees to come back into Israeli land. So that's why Egypt and Jordan are stuck saying no to refugees. That's how sad and well-known this conflict is throughout the Middle East, because people understand that there's some trickery involved here. Israel is, is attacking Gaza in part to force the Palestinians to relocate so that when they have relocated, they can never let them back into Israel again. That's the true purpose behind much of the attack that Israel is launching into Gaza. They don't want to occupy it, like they said. They do honestly want to take over all the, all the land and make it part of Israel again. And if they can get the Palestinians out, then they don't have to worry about giving the Palestinians, the Palestinians their own state. I secured an agreement for the first shipment of humanitarian assistance from the United Nations to Palestinian civilians in Gaza. Hamas does not divert or steal this shipment. We're going to provide an opening for sustained delivery of life-saving humanitarian assistance for the Palestinians. 
Now, this is the president uh, executing his own provocative move by telling us and the American people, and of course, sending the warning to Hamas as well, that the as long as Hamas does not interfere with the delivery of this humanitarian aid into Gaza, then the United States will continue providing humanitarian. There's a problem with this because Gaza is, it's, it's managed, it's, its political party is Hamas. It's actually impossible for humanitarian aid to get distributed in Gaza without Hamas playing a role. Hamas will have to divert it. Hamas will have to uh, take accountability of it. Hamas will be in charge of the humanitarian aid because Hamas is the ruling political party in Gaza. It's impossible to get that food into Gaza without Hamas having a touch on it, right? It's, it's, it's unreasonable. It's like saying that you're gonna send humanitarian aid to the state of Louisiana without any members of the state of Louisiana supporting in the distribution. So no police, no military, no politicians, no nonprofits, nothing from the state itself. It's not possible. So what the president is really doing here is setting up a situation where Gaza will fail to execute on that objective, and then it'll sound like, it'll look like, some sort of terrorist organization is blocking the delivery of humanitarian aid. Just last week, a mother was brutally stabbed. A little boy here in the United States, a little boy who just turned six years old was murdered in their home outside of Chicago. His name was Wadiha, a proud American, a proud Palestinian-American family. So the tragedy uh, against this six-year-old boy and his mother in Hanoi is heart-wrenching. If you haven't read about it, I actually recommend you don't read about it. Just trust me when I tell you that it's, it's a heartbreaking, heart-wrenching story. It is currently under investigation as a possible hate crime. And what is known about it is really relevant to what the president just said, because the president basically said that it was an act of anti-Islamophobia or anti-Islam, or it was a somehow racially instigated primarily. What reporting has been done about it so far actually suggests that it might have been more influenced as a result of biased media. The primary suspect, the person arrested with uh, what looks to be pretty convincing evidence that he was the, the, the person who stabbed the mother and the child, is a Caucasian white male who was the landlord of the property in which this family lives. Uh, however, in the history of the family, that same landlord was actually very positive with the family, building uh, a treehouse for their child, uh, bringing and gifting him toys and positive attention. So it does not look like he was inherently Islamophobic or racially motivated against the family in any way, shape, or form until the attack on October 7th. And until the media started talking about Hamas being a terrorist group and Palestinians being a terrorist group or the the assumption that just by being Palestinian, you are also Hamas, which is an inaccurate assumption. There's these non-specifics that are being amplified, these fears being amplified by media. And in that that fear, in that, that jumble of anger and fear, people are taking action. Whether or not that constitutes a hate crime is up to the law enforcement of the land to decide. But it is important to understand that Islamophobia and anti-Semitism are not necessarily the driving force here behind violence that's currently happening as a result of this conflict. There's a great deal of response that's really tied to what we call in the intel community the fog of war. Fog of war meaning that when a war happens and troops start to fight each other, dust gets kicked up, smoke gets kicked up, and you can't actually see the battlefield anymore. And in that absence of clarity, you have a fog of information, a lack of information. That's exactly what we're seeing happen now with the media, with misinformation and disinformation, and with the fact that we are constantly trying to guess and make assumptions about what's currently happening, what will happen in the future. In that fog of war, it leaves people feeling lost. It leaves people feeling scared. It leaves people feeling vulnerable. And in many ways, uh, that is that is largely being driven in the United States 
by biased media and by incomplete information, by the three lies that we're here observing even now during this presidential address, lies of commission, lies of influence, and lies of omission. We must, without equivocation, denounce anti-Semitism. We must also, without equivocation, denounce Islamophobia. And to all you hurting, those of you hurting, I want you to know I see you. You belong. And I want to say this to you. You're all Americans. I, I really appreciate what President Biden is saying right now, right? He's speaking to the values that make us the greatest country in the world. And I completely agree with those values. We denounce all hates. We denounce all forms of discrimination. This is who we are in our core as Americans. Does, are we perfect all the time? No, we're not. But we are always trying to be better. We're always trying to do better. It is exactly that that makes me so disappointed with this presidential address. Because by, by offering our support to Israel, we are violating our own core values. We are actually endorsing discrimination because that's what Israel does against Palestine. We are actively endorsing and supporting hatred because that is exactly what's driving the reprisal attacks from Israel into Palestine. This is not a, a country that's, that is offering tit for tat. This is not a conflict that's trying to achieve parity. This is a conflict where the stated objective is to destroy Hamas. Hamas is an elected legislative government political body in Gaza. That means we are supporting forced regime change and the systematic killing of people based on their political beliefs. We can't allow that to happen. And that is exactly what the president is saying that we need to do right now. When Putin invaded Ukraine, he thought he would take Kyiv and all of Ukraine in a matter of days. Well, over a year later, Putin has failed and he continues to fail. So this is another lie of omission, folks. Uh, Russia, since October 9th, has actually launched a new offensive campaign into Ukraine, and they have taken new territory and they have taken new land. So when the president says that, that Putin continues to fail, that's only partially true, which is the definition of a lie of omission. Yes, Putin has not taken Kiev, that is true. However, Putin has, and his armies have, taken new land in a new renewed offensive that is expanding into Ukraine. And while the world is reading the news about Israel and Hamas, there's plenty of information out there that is also demonstrating and documenting the success of Russia's advance into Ukraine since October 9th. From the outset, I've said, I will not send American troops to fight Ukraine. All Ukraine is asking for is help for the weapons, munitions, the capacity, the capability to push invading Russian forces off their land. This is another lie of influence. So the president is correct that all he's asking for is to help send support and weapons into Ukraine. And that he is not intentioning, not intending and does not want to send American troops to war in Ukraine. However, in this same presidential address, somewhere in the first five or seven minutes, he did talk about that if any attack happened in NATO, the United States would do everything in its power to support NATO and adhere to the articles therein, which would commit us to war. So what the president is saying is that he will not send us to war in Ukraine, but that does not mean that he won't put American troops on the ground in other NATO countries, especially if there is an attack that spreads from Ukraine into a NATO country that triggers Article 5 of the NATO alliance. So uh, the lie of influence here is to basically say that what he is saying in the same presidential address is that he will send American troops to war in Europe. He just doesn't want to send them to Ukraine. We send Ukrainian equipment sitting in our stockpiles. And when we use the money allocated by Congress, we use it to replenish our own stores, our own stockpiles with new equipment. 
Now, this is true. Uh, the president is finally acknowledging the system by which we've been supporting Ukraine, sending them old weapons and then using the money that we appropriate from Congress actually to keep it within our own country, to feed our own economy so that we can create new weapons, new weapons that we put in our own stockpiles. I wish that this message would have been communicated two years ago. I was communicating this message to the world a year and a half to two years ago as it was happening. But the bottom line here is that we are now being shared. The president is now expressly explaining to us how that appropriated money is used. This was a previous lie of omission that they were not explaining to us before because they wanted the American people to believe that we were sending top-of-the-line weapons to Ukraine. Uh, we were sending them everything that we could to support them very early on in the war. When in reality, we've always been sending them our surplus and our older weapons. We have also been sending them experimental weapons so that we can test those experimental weapons on the battlefield. But the truth is that the money that we appropriate from Congress is money that we use to stimulate our own government. The only exception to that is humanitarian aid, which is still used to, to stimulate our own economy, but then a portion of it is used for logistical support to Ukraine. So if you weren't already previously aware of this, this is really important information to understand because as the president asks for this money, as the president and the Congress give money, one of the reasons that this has bipartisan support from both the Republicans and Democrats in Congress and in the Senate is because it's a net benefit to the United States economy when they take 150 or $105 billion and they put it right back into the U.S. economy, or they put 75% of it back into the U.S. economy. It does, however, fail to acknowledge how poorly the supplies and the weapons and, uh, and the, the money that is sent to Ukraine is managed, which, again, that's a, a well-documented, well-known issue, that there is significant corruption and failed accountability in Ukraine with what aid they do, uh, they do receive. Earlier this year, I boarded Air Force One for a secret flight to Poland. There I boarded a train with blacked-out windows for a 10-hour ride each way to Kyiv to stand with the people of Ukraine ahead of the one-year anniversary of their brave fight against Putin. And I'm told I was the first American to enter a war zone not controlled by the United States military since President Lincoln. Here you have the president really showing his true purpose behind this presidential address. Earlier in the announcement, you heard him say that he was the first president to enter Israel in a war zone. Now you hear him saying he's the first president to enter an active war zone uh, that was not controlled by the American military. He's also, in a, in a bold statement, comparing himself to President Lincoln, one of, of course, America's best presidents. So you really see that uh, the conclusion of his Oval Office speech is really a giant preparatory speech to explain why he should be reelected and why he's the best leader for the job and how as America continues to support these two conflicts that he's the person that we should all put our faith and support behind. Uh, even though in the preceding 13 minutes that we've just watched you saw multiple instances of lies of omission, lies of influence, and lies of commission in the address itself. But with that being said, let's see this for what it really is as we finish out this this address from the Oval Office, a giant speech that is saying, trust in me and re-elect me because the, the bill that I'm sending to Congress won't ever get passed because Congress is full of broken uh, Republican hawkish hardliners that can't seem to get their stuff together. That's the real message that he wants us to take away from this address. We can't let petty, partisan, angry politics get in the way of our responsibilities as a great nation. We cannot and will not let terrorists like Hamas and tyrants like Putin win. I refuse to let that happen. 
It's a thrilling speech, right? It's pretty compelling. Even if you just go back and listen to it again, it's extremely compelling. And that's why they have professional speechwriters to write speeches for presidents who give presentations from the Oval Office on eaves where, uh, where the American people are torn, like what we're seeing right now. But the bottom line here is that he talks about how we can't let people like Iran and Putin win. However, what we're actually seeing is Russia making gains in Ukraine and Iran successfully provo provoking Israel into a humanitarian crisis. Essentially, we are watching them win right now. We are being part of their victory right now. Just as the president says, he doesn't want to see bipartisan squabbles or he doesn't want to see polarized squabbles between Democrats and Republicans. He is essentially participating in exactly that with this presentation from the Oval Office, with the bill that he's sending to a Congress that he already knows can't be passed because they don't have a speaker identified. What we're seeing is exactly that squabble being provoked from the Oval Office. This was not a message that was designed to explain to us why we should invest in Israel or Ukraine at all. Now that you've seen the majority of the dress, can you state what is the national security imperative to us supporting Ukraine or Israel? I can't state it clearly, outside of saying that we're going to continue to stimulate our economy by paying for the weapons we send to other countries. I don't really understand what the president's point was in all this if it wasn't simply to give us this rousing speech at the end about American values and American ideals, which you and I already share and we already have. May God bless you all. May God protect our troops. Why does God need to protect our troops, Mr. President? Why didn't you end this with God bless you all and God bless the United States of America? Was that an accident? Was that a bad speechwriter? Or are you giving us a hint of what your intentions might actually be? Thank you, everybody, for your time. I'm very excited to get your feedback. Leave your comment below. Click subscribe. Share with me your thoughts. Agree with me or disagree with me. This is a wide open conversation. This is our country. We have to decide what we do with it in our future from this inflection point. Thank you, Mr. President. Thank you for watching and God bless America.